Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with D.L. Mayfield. D.L. is a writer, activist, and the author of the recent book, Unruly Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and Its Challenge for Our Times. You can get connected with D.L. and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have D.L. Mayfield with us. D.L., I have interviewed your husband, uh, and now I feel like I saved the best for last in the Mayfield <gasps> family. Uh, and I've also interviewed your sister at one point, too. So, yeah, I really am saving the best Mayfield for last. No, that's not. That's absolutely untrue. I'm like, you have what? talked to the cream of the crop, and now you have <laughs> angsty little me to talk to. <laughs> you know, I, as an Enneagram 4, I appreciate the angst, and I will gladly embrace all of the angst you might bring into this interview. Okay. Well, I, I just want to say Crispin Mayfield is, like, the best human in the world. And so, you know, I'm I'm... Poor seconds after that. But yes, everybody's talked to you about me, and now here I am. Here you are. Here you are. Uh, there is a lot to you. You're a writer, you're an activist, and uh, you do a lot more in the world. But who is D.L. Mayfield to D.L. Mayfield? Yeah, I, if I'm being really honest, you know, I'm somebody who is struggling to recover from the past few years of the pandemic, the mm-hmm. past, um, you know, six, seven years of Trumpism, past several decades of growing up in a high control religious environment that was white evangelicalism. So I'm somebody who is like in the thick of processing a lot of religious trauma, a lot of like societal trauma. I have a ton of like societal collapse anxiety. It's a real thing. Mm -hmm. I got it. And in the past year, a huge thing that has changed for me has been I am now um, in the process of being diagnosed as autistic so that's been a Mm. huge revelation for me personally Um, and I think that informs my writing activism all that stuff Uh, so that's I guess that's why I mentioned it here but yeah I'm just somebody who is you know struggling to function in many ways and also still continuing to live my life as the empire crumbles which you know something Dorothy Day did too. So there we well, go. Well, speaking of Dorothy Day, you mm-hmm. just wrote a book about her. It's called Unruly mm-hmm. Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and its Challenge Four Times. I'm really excited mm-hmm. to chat about the book. This is not your first book, though. Uh, yeah. A lot of times I talk with people. It's their very first book, their first book. And, uh, and in those cases, a lot they learn a lot about themselves. But is there anything that you learned about yourself in the writing process of this book that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Maybe there was something about, oh, didn't know I had that in me or I didn't know that about myself. And now I do know because of this book writing process. 
Oh, this is such a great question to ask writers. And yeah, this is my third book and it's my first biography. Even mm. though I say in the beginning, like, I'm not a biographer. This isn't a biography. It's like, well, I treated it as one. I just also wanted to like get out in front of the haters, you know, who were like, <laughs> who is this? It's funny. People who write biographies about people like Dorothy Day are older. They're mostly Catholic. They're mostly men. They're mostly white. And so they just think they think of me as like a very young outsider, which is hilarious because I'm squarely middle aged. But I had to work really hard to write a biography. That's a different genre. And so I came about writing this book because Dorothy Day is just one of my special interests. I've been so fascinated with her for so long. I was like reading her diary entries and like contrasting that with her really famous autobiography, The Long Loneliness, which was like a New mm-hmm. York Times bestseller. It made her just like a very like devoted icon of like the Lower East Side, New York, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And her diaries, there's like some real differences between how she personally was like talking about her life and everything she was involved with and then what she put forth to the world. I was just fascinated by that. So when my agent was like, do you want to write another book? I was like, all I want to do is talk about Dorothy Day. And my agent was like, well, nobody cares about Dorothy Day, basically. And when I actually ended up getting a book contract... My agent was like, you are so lucky. You are so lucky. Like, nobody cares about Dorothy Day. And so I'm saying this, like, kind of intensely, but that's, like, also how I received it. And I was like, yeah, I am lucky that Broadleaf wanted to publish this book. Now, here's one of the most fascinating things I learned while I was writing the book is that, so I'm a Protestant, low church, evangelical. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I could just speak out about, you know what I mean? Like, our, our Shout backgrounds. out to the ex-evangelicals that didn't go to the high church tradition. I mean, I'm never. I'm. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but yes, I'm not the Episcopal route. I'm like get obsessed with Dorothy Day and become a Christian anarchist route. That's my journey. But yeah, when I was writing this book, I realized like Dorothy is in the actual canonization process in the Catholic Church, which is a huge freaky deal to Catholics, and it's like. I I can't even explain to you all the intricacies of that process but the more I had like Catholic readers and people really familiar with Dorothy and who knew her in her real life or are engaged in the canonization process they were like you need to take this seriously like she's going to become a canonized saint and it's going to be a huge deal and I was like okay so learning to take that seriously and it just kind of opened up so many more interesting questions for me as we talk about what do religious institutions and religious hierarchies do with radical figures? Um, and so Dorothy is like a really fascinating example of how like the church hierarchy has responded to her. Because if you read my book, you know, you'll see she had a really fascinating relationship with the church. Mm-hmm. And um, people would like to say, you know, mostly the conservative Catholics at this point would say like, Dorothy is such a good example of somebody who was a pious Catholic, very devout, went to mass all the time and helped the poor. But um, it's so much more complex than that. And so that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a really fascinating thing to learn about. I guess that's not about myself, but I also learned about myself that I really want to do right by people. And I really wanted to do right by Dorothy. And I wanted to make it clear that I was writing with my own biases, my own perspective. And I am, you know, a white woman from a middle class background raised in Christianity who lives in the United States as the housing situation becomes untenable for so many people as we're seeing so much unemployment as COVID has devastated, you know, our communities and filled up the hospitals. I'm like, I'm writing 
the book from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's why I centered the book around 1933 this year when Dorothy Day started her newspaper, The Catholic Worker, because it was such an incredibly important time in American history as well. And I'm like, I kind of think we're in another one, Mason. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in the research of Dorothy Day's life that was new to you? I would imagine that you know a lot about Dorothy Day, even going into the book. But was there anything in that research uh, process for writing the book that you're like, whoa, I had no idea about Dorothy Day and that part of her life? Yeah, one of the most like controversial things in her life is that she is someone who had an abortion and Mm -hmm. she wrote a novel about it. And this is before she became a Catholic. And how most people talk about that novel is called um, The 11th Virgin. And it's kind of like a fictionalized story of Dorothy's life. And not really. I mean, again, there's there's real differences there. But I had thought like it's it was a book about how awful you know backdoor abortions are how awful abortions are Mm -hmm. and how much Mm -hmm. the main character regrets it but really talking to brian terrell who's this amazing catholic worker longtime catholic worker who has this like uh, incredible memory of everything dorothy's ever written and said and he knew dorothy um he lived at the catholic worker when she was still alive and he told me he's like you need to go back and reread that novel he's like it's a pro Mm. abortion rights book like she was writing it to say abortion needs to be legalized. And that's why later on she would have these dreams and like want to burn every copy because if it had been about how bad abortions are and how awful they are, like she probably would have wanted to continue to celebrate that book because that would be more in line with Catholic teaching. So again, that was just one example of how much more complex the reality is and how we do bring our bias to these things when we're looking at them. The other thing that blew me away is that uh, so Dorothy Day always said that the Catholic worker movement, which was, you know, this newspaper she put out once a month, it was these houses of hospitalities. She started in New York City, you know, in the shadow of the Great Depression, and eventually was these like back to the land farms, like farming communes that she started. She always said that she was the co-founder and that she founded it with this man named Peter Morin. Now, Peter Morin, in my mind, I was just like, is this Dorothy sort of like capitulating to like patriarchal culture, right? Because she was a very subversive person and she was in Catholicism, which is very patriarchal, very hierarchical. So was she just saying like, this man helped co-found this with me and that allowed her to do everything she did? That's kind of like the prejudice I had going into it. And learning more about Peter Morin was just fascinating for me. He is such an interesting character. He was basically like a wandering hobo who would like stand on the street corners in Union Square and just like recite these prose poems he made up about how the world needs to change. He had a threefold plan to change the world. He read some of Dorothy's articles and was like, okay, she's a part of my plan. She's like a modern saint. She's a Catherine of Siena, like for our time. And he went and told her about this. And Dorothy started to listen to him. Everybody else thought he was just another homeless man, like talking incoherently Mm. like and it turns out he had had this amazing education in france and he spent all his free time basically like reading like all the most intellectual books of the day all the philosophy all the religion and he had this encyclopedic knowledge of catholic teaching specifically around catholic social teaching so he could recite like what the popes had to say about labor from like you know 40 years ago like that kind of a mind but he's largely been forgotten in history and so the more I learned about him, the more I realized he was such an important part in the Catholic worker movement. And I just want to give a little Peter Moore a shout out, you know, give him his due because yeah. he's not in line to be canonized. You know what I mean? Like he's everybody who ever right. met Peter Moore in real life is dead. Like we have nobody 
to talk to today who actually knew him in person and and Dorothy kind of knew that would happen and so she she tried tirelessly to talk about him. What were some of the early things that happened in Dorothy Day's life that shaped who she ended up becoming and what she ended up doing especially with the Catholic worker movement? Yeah, I mean, if you look at her life, she was a hugely intelligent person. Like she was a voracious reader. That's how she learned about the world. Um, She was really influenced by books like Uptown Sinclair's book, The Jungle, which kind of talked about how the U.S. exploits, you know, immigrant labor in her own city of Chicago at the time. She ended up going to college. She won a scholarship because of how smart she was. She was like 16 years old, left home. She'd been very sheltered. And then she fell in with all of these like leftists at at college when she was really young. And she actually didn't go to class. She dropped out of college after two years. She never went to class and she spent all her money on books because she was like, these college classes aren't talking about the poor. They aren't talking about the common worker. And so she was really caught up in this heady idealism of sort of like, you know, the turn of the century. And then I, as I wrote the book, I kind of started to understand more and more just um, how devastating like the time period around World War One was to so many people. So like prior mm. to World War One, right, there was this sense of like all these young people are like, we can change the system. We can start to care for each other better. Everybody's like, we're never going to have a terrible war again. Like we have evolved so much. Like we are amazing. You know, the myth of human progress is just like what everybody believed in. And every, you know, people are starting to organize for labor rights and everybody's like, things are just going to get better and better and better and better. And everybody's like, yes, of course they will then World War I happens, right? And suddenly all of Dorothy's comrades, all the people she's starting to write newspaper articles with and work with them, you know, they either are told you have to sign up for war or they like flee the country to escape going to war. They go into hiding, all this stuff. She ends up getting like called upon to testify in front of the U.S. because, you know, she's working for these like leftist magazines. So people are just devastated because so many people died in World War One, just across the board. So many people died. And many people were like, for what? Like, what was that all about? Like, what even happened? And and right after that, there was like, you know, the influence of 1918, right? This huge pandemic. Dorothy actually became a nurse and was like at the front lines of this pandemic and cared for people as they were dying. And that really impacted her. And then after that, um, you know, she kind of fell in again with sort of like depressed, idealistic people who were thinking about changing the world. Um, And then a huge part of her story is she eventually uh, just felt this overwhelming desire to convert to Catholicism. And when she did that, it was such a huge turning point in her life. And all her radical friends were like, I literally can't believe you're doing this. Like, this is the last thing we would ever have expected from you. Like, you're joining the enemy. Like, that's truly how they saw it. And so for her, Mm. like me coming from a Christian background, I'm like, yeah, okay, you convert to Christianity. That makes sense. But for Dorothy, it was like this huge life-altering decision and actually led her to basically end her her common-law marriage she had with a man who was a full-on anarchist and could not uh, commit to the church. Why do you think Dorothy Day ended up making that conversion to Catholicism, even though so many people in her life were not on board with it? Like, what was it about Catholicism that you think really motivated her, motivated her to move in that direction and still retain this really leftist politics that she still had? Yeah, I think such a great question. And in her own book, The Long Loneliness, you know, she really went out of her way to say, she converted to Catholicism out of 
joy. Like she was drawn to God out of love mm. and goodness. She, like she was finally in a relationship with a man who really loved her. She lived on the shack by the beach. She was like kind of calming down from all the years of like the pandemic and the war and this, these horrible relationships she'd had, you know, this abortion she'd had. She married a man on the rebound. Like she did a lot of stuff, right? She finally was settled down walking on the beach and she just like, her mind kept wanting to thank somebody for the goodness in the world, right? For what you could see in the ocean, for what you could experience in the world, for love. And she's like, I think I'm saying thanks to God. I think I'm kind of religious and I always have been and people's always mm. said that. But then she would like have this conversation herself. She's like, no, remember what Mark said? You know, like Mark said, like this is the opiate of the masses and I'm just like a, like a cow. I'm just a cow who's really happy and it's just going to mm. become all bourgeoisie and a Christian because in her mind, She's like, Christians go to church so that they can feel better about themselves and stop caring about the poor. Like, that is how she perceived mm. the church. She'd always been drawn to God. She'd always been drawn to, like, the actual Bible, the actual scriptures. But when she saw Christians in her life, she's like, ugh, no, thank you. But she loved all this Catholic writing, all this stuff. So she eventually is like, you know what? I want to say thanks to God. I think I believe in God. I want to go all in on this. And uh, people say that the Catholic Church is like the one church. So I guess it's it. I'm going to do Catholics. And she had also been in Mexico mm. when um, like a few years and all that stuff. She ended up realizing like the Catholic Church is the church of the poor. So those were like the two main things for her. You know, people worldwide mm. around the world who were in poverty, who were the masses. You know, she was in love with the masses. They by and large, were a part of the Catholic Church, and she had been told it's the one true church. And so when she converted to Catholicism, like, she didn't have Catholic friends, right? She went to priests for confession. She went to mass, but she was quite isolated and quite lonely. And she was a Catholic for a full five years before she met Peter Morin. And that's when it really mm. took off. And she was like, wait a minute, there's been a bunch of radicals this whole time. And that was very exciting mm. for her to find that. Well, well, that moves into then the Catholic Worker Movement. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what the Catholic Worker Movement is and how Dorothy got involved in all of it? Yeah, I mean, it started it started with Peter Moran showing up on her doorstep. And Dorothy had just had this amazing experience of reporting on this march to Washington by all these uh, workers who were debating rights in the United States. And she saw like how the media treated them and how conservative people were just like so freaked out about people organizing for rights. And she was so depressed. She was like, what am I doing here on the sidelines? Like writing about this for a Catholic newspaper. Like, I want to be there. I want to be marching with them. And then she was like, and if Jesus was here, like Jesus looks like them, he would be marching with them. Like, what am I even doing? So she's having like this huge crisis, right? She goes to the shrine of Mary and she says, please, God, show me a way forward. Like, how can I still be a Catholic? And, and like marry these radical ideals I have. And then she goes back to her, her apartment in New York and Peter Morin is literally there on the doorstep. And he's like, listen, I have this three-part plan to change the world and you're going to be a part of it. And she was like, okay, I'm listening. Mm. And she did listen to him. Like she let him come by day after day and he would just tell her everything he had learned about Catholic social teaching, Catholic history, like political, you know, things happening in Europe and the U.S., and his three-part plan to change the world was, like, basically, you know, declare to people, like, there's a new way of doing things, right? And then, you know, create houses of hospitality and then have these back-to-land communes. And so Dorothy was like, well, 
and he wanted Dorothy to be like the writer to get out his message. And so she was like, oh, yeah, I could start a newspaper because her dad and brothers were in the newspaper business. And she literally did. She just sat down at her typewriter and wrote out eight pages on the issues of the day. Tons of varied issues, by the way. And and incorporated all this Catholic social teaching and all these like papal encyclicals that Peter had been telling her about into this paper. And Peter was actually kind of annoyed because he thought she was just going to print all of his little essays and nothing else and she was like no 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 like i have my own thoughts i'm a reporter i'm a journalist i'm gonna talk about Mm. strikes and he was like i don't want to talk about strikes i want to talk about like changing the hearts of man so that they will take up their individual responsibility to help the poor and she's like okay well that's a part of it so anyways the newspaper is what started attracting people to dorothy she whatever she didn't sell you know she'd send up to all these catholic churches it would get passed around to people so people started showing up at her actual apartment in new york like people who needed things because she said this paper is for people who are poor and and peter had this idea that like okay we'll do the paper and then like the catholic church is going to start all these houses of hospitality right we'll just go to all the priests and be like you know all these houses you have for priests like there's this huge housing crisis. I don't know if you know this, but like 25% of the U.S. is unemployed right now in 1933. Like, why don't you convert some of your priest housing and start housing these people, especially who are in the Lower East Side of New York? And Peter's like, of course, the Catholic priests are going to agree to this. Like, this is in line with their, you know, theology, the doctrine, the historic teachings mm-hmm. of the church. And do you want to take a guess what happened, Mason? <laughs> you know, uh, I think priests <laughs> are going to do the priest thing that they typically do. Which is, they did not convert their housing, right? And so Dorothy was like, well, I'm tired of waiting around. I'm just going to use some of my money and start renting out apartment buildings and housing people. So that's what she did. And so it's funny to me when, like, Dorothy's in the process of being ordained in the Catholic Church and people love to say, like, you know, she started these movements of hospitality. And I'm like, yeah, but inherent in her starting this movement is the failure of the hierarchical church to respond in any meaningful way to the absolute crisis Mm. point that was new york city in 1933 and dorothy's like i can't wait around for these people anymore and she just did Mm. it and eventually they did that too with the farming communes they they bought a bunch of farms and they experimented and did all this stuff and mostly just because dorothy's like i can't wait around for the people who say you know they have the keys to god's kingdom like to actually do this stuff and so peter always always hoped until the day he died right that the church would stand up to its stated ideals and dorothy was like sure and then she just went out and did it so they're a very interesting team Mm. that way so i'm curious you know this is all a few decades before the latin american liberation theology movement in, in in the 60s and 70s did she have any connection with anything that was going on? Uh, obviously, in that part of the world, a little bit different than North America. But yeah, a- anything that she had involvement in or did she say anything about it? I'm just really curious because uh, in terms of the Catholic Church potentially having some larger movement of doing what she was hoping for the world, that seemed to be one of the closer uh, manifestations of that. Yeah, and so this is a great you know, time for me to say that I am not a historian. I'm not a biographer. And so I, my book focused on the 1930s in New York later on, right in the right. 60s and 70s, there's like some amazing stuff. And there's actually Robert Ellsberg who wrote the forward to my book. He started putting out these volumes, like Dorothy Day's columns from specific decades. So you can actually like 
there's books on Dorothy Day on the 60s, Dorothy Day on the 70s. And those are both such good volumes because then you can actually see her responding to all these issues of the day. I will say when, you know, in the 1920s and, you know, yeah, especially the late 1920s, like she was in Mexico and mostly there it was like this sort of like communist thought. And Dorothy's writings were extremely popular in Russia, in parts of Mexico, um, in parts of Latin America that were like starting to go towards communist thinking. And, and she was quite popular in those spaces. But, you know, really where she, when the part my book focuses on is, is there's some really interesting parallels to today, right? She's in the United States. Catholicism mm. is kind of on the sidelines politically almost but they really want power and so they're trying to position themselves as like mainstream religion and so there hadn't there wasn't really a a ton of like catholic radical thought honestly protestants had been doing the work right Mm. and especially like black protestants had been doing it and that's that's something that i also talk about in the book like the lower east side is not that far from Harlem, right? And where all these amazing things were going Mm. on in the 1920s right in the 1930s and dorothy did not engage with it And that's like a huge shame, (laughs) you know, like she Mm. missed out on this huge thing going on in New York City because she was kind of caught up in her own world and all that stuff. Later on, you know, in the 60s, -hmm. that's when she really started to learn more and learn from black people about the experience of being black instead of saying, I think I know what it's like or whatever. So all that to Mm. say in the 1930s, what was really happening is Catholics were pretty drawn to fascism and pretty drawn to this like support of Catholic fascist leaders, you know, in Europe who are like, we'll take care of you. We'll protect you. We're doing God's work. And Dorothy and Peter are like, what? This is bad. This doesn't seem bad. And a lot of priests, Catholic priests in the U S were starting to say a lot of anti-Semitic comments in the 1930s. And so fascism and anti-Semitism were both hugely on Dorothy's mind as far as in the church. And meanwhile, she was, like loved the communists because communists were starting to get pretty, you know, popular. She modeled her entire paper off of a communist paper called the daily worker. She loved so much about them, but she was so mad at them because they hated religion so much and they denigrated religion so much. Mm -hmm. And she was like, Mm -hmm. most of the poor workers of the world are Catholic or have a faith of some kind. How can you say you're working for the common man when you say, actually they're all stupid because they believe in religion like mm. how can you do that and so her mm. first issue of the catholic worker was like can we expose and complain and want to you know change everything about the system without denigrating religion like yes we can and watch us do it and that's basically mm. you know what she did mm-hmm. so she had all these things pulling at her at all times and that's i think what makes her such a fascinating person so when i think of dorothy day i, I think she's one of the at least among Americans, one of the prominent American Christian socialists. You know, she definitely kind of is up there if she's not maybe the uh, the figurehead of specifically American Christian socialism. But I'm curious. So socialism is often a scary word these days, uh, even though there is a long history of socialism being a part, or at least socialist movements happening in America. Obviously, during those 1920s, the the early 20th century, there was a lot of socialist movements happening. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And certainly Dorothy Day is alongside that. But I'm curious, beyond just being uh, somebody who was a figurehead of the American Christian socialist movement at that time, 
how did she live out socialism in her day-to-day life, right? She wasn't a socialist academic or anything, right? Uh, And so I'm curious, like, she was definitely a practitioner at the end of the day. That's how she sort of thought of herself. So I'm curious, like, how did she actually live out that socialism from a day-to-day practice? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, people put a lot of labels onto Dorothy and she was like kind of uneasy with a lot of them. And that included socialists, even though she had tons of socialist friends. She is obviously very familiar with their thought. And she really throughout her life was comfortable saying, I'm a Christian anarchist. So that's what she would say, that she was more of an anarchist and that she really appreciated and was like Mm. partnering with socialists to do their work. But inherently, she had a deep distrust of the government. And so she called them, you know, the government like the Holy Mother State. She was really continually influenced by Peter Morin, who was like, we have to let the individual decide how to how to live their life, you know, and we can create a world where it's easier to do good. But like, really, this idea of we can't give allegiance to anybody, but Jesus and some of these like, I won't even say some, a lot of socialist movements, a lot of leftist movements, right? You have to buy all in, right? To be a part of it and trust that they're going to do what's best. And mm. and Peter and Dorothy just had this really healthy distrust of any movement, right? That said, this is absolutely going to work. This is going to be what's best. And they were always like, mm. you should have a healthy distrust. And um, I, I don't know. I think there's something so profound about that because words like socialism, you know, I grew up quite evangelical so that that word was like so bad and even like my my dad has not read my second book which was called the myth of the american dream because he's really afraid that it's about socialism and and so it's like such a huge topic Mm. to me that it helped me to sort of lean into what is christian anarchism and let's explore that a little bit more so i do talk about about that in the book and i think it's truly what underlies her life i mean she had so many contradictory things right so she like got arrested and beaten up quite badly by the police uh protesting for women's suffrage for women's right to vote right in the 19 teens and so she did that and then she went on to never vote ever like she got beaten up within an inch Mm. of her life went on a hunger strike all this stuff for women's right to vote and then she never utilized the right to vote that is exactly in line with her anarchism because she was like of course, I want other people to have that right, and they could choose to have that right. However, when women's suffrage was passed, like it only gave white women the right to vote. Black people still didn't have the right to vote mm. in the United States. You know, black mm-hmm. women certainly didn't have the right to vote in the United States, right? So she was just like, it's not for everybody. Like, not everybody can do it. Why do I have to do it? You know, she was not a fan of welfare reform. She was just like, and she was really influenced by Peter Morin, who's like, we can't have the government take care of us. Like, we need to take care of each other, which again, sounds really dangerous when we're coming from like our current libertarian, you know, Republican mindset. Right, but Peter right. Tr- truly meant like, you should have this extreme heaviness around you if you know some of your neighbors are needed and you're not doing that. Like, you are literally denying the core tenets of Catholicism if you're not helping those in need around you and everybody's in need around us. So you best be doing a lot. You know, Mm. that was his framework. And Dorothy was like, yeah, like I I totally am on board with, we need to do what we can, but I, I distrust the state. So she didn't like welfare reforms. And yet the second they were passed, she would sign up everybody for them, any family who wanted them. She's like, I'm there with you. I'm signing Mm -hmm. you up. So that's, I mean, I just love that. I love that about her. 
Yeah, there's definitely this complexity, especially the way that she relates not only to her faith, but certainly even to kind of broader society. And, you know, I, I feel like I kind of have that complex relationship with the state, right? And in some ways, I recognize that there's some really helpful things uh, in the immediate that the state might be able to do as somebody who holds these leftist positions. But also the anarchists in me also recognizes they're ultimately uh, futile and they're not going to actually bring about the ultimate liberation that I, I think we ultimately need. Yeah. And I think a great thing for me writing this book was like coming into it, I was like, okay, Dorothy, I want to know what Dorothy Day thinks on all these things. She seems like she has the right idea. I want to be like that. And I think learning more about anarchism and even thinking about like the protests like that came out of Hong Kong in the past few years, like there's this really beautiful idea mm-hmm. of I, I can't stop thinking about it. I think in Hong Kong specifically, they kept saying like, be like water. So they encourage like each person at the protest to develop mm. their own sense of autonomy, own sense of self, know exactly what you're comfortable doing, know exactly when you need to leave, know exactly when you no longer feel comfortable and like join the movement, but know who you are join the movement, but know who you are. And to me, that is a beautiful picture of Christian anarchism and how Dorothy Day lived her life. And she was like, the more you know yourself and exactly what your values are and what you want to do and recognize everybody's is going to be different and we need all different types in the movement. I just think that's so encouraging. I, I know I really struggle with black and white thinking. That's what made me such a good evangelical for so many years. There's some of that black and white thinking in all spheres, including leftist spaces. Right. And there's some pressure to be like, mm-hmm. we all must believe exactly the same and organize exactly the same and resist exactly the same. And that's just not true. That's not how humans are. Dorothy Days and Peter Moore were both such great because ex- they were different from each other and they clashed all the time. They had people work for mm-hmm. them that had extremely different ideas. And it just really gave me this sense of like relief, like we can all be who we are and we can all agree that capitalism sucks. <laughs> needs to be changed and overthrown Um, but we might all have different ways of doing that and i just appreciate that this episode of a people's theology is brought to you by united theological seminary of the twin cities are you considering exploring your faith more deeply or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you when you come to united you join a community that is intentionally open socially aware and theologically adventurous United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. As you wrote the book, I'm sure, again, you were doing a lot of research on Dorothy Day. You already knew a lot about Dorothy Day. What is it that she believed theologically? Obviously, she was very Catholic, but what is it that she believed about God? What is it that she believed about salvation? You know, all these things pertaining to theology. I'm really curious because I think ultimately what we believe about God, salvation, all of that really shapes the way uh, that we behave in the world, uh, shapes our politics. So I'm just curious uh, what you found in her theology that ultimately shaped 
the way she lived her life. Yeah, I think what's what has always drawn me to Dorothy is she is somebody like she titled her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. Like that's not what you call a spiritual memoir. If you wanted to get on the New York Times bestseller list, you don't call it the long loneliness. Like, I think that's very telling. And what she was saying with that title, and she literally, I was like a moth to a flame when I heard that title. Because, Mason, I grew up here, and I don't know, I'm going to get really emotional talking about this, right? I grew up hearing that God loved me, God loved the world, like God made people in his image. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. I read the words of Jesus and I was just like, this person has like the best ethics I've ever heard in my life. Like when you read the Sermon on the Plain, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, he is literally saying like, we need to upend society and prioritize those who are flourishing the least. And when they are doing well, we will all do well. I mean, that's just a beautiful ethic for any community, any country, anything. I was so in love with it. And then I would look around and see how Christians were behaving and see how they were living Mm -hmm. and see their politics. I mean, I had Rush Limbaugh blaring at my house every day. My dad was a pastor and would listen to Rush Limbaugh as he wrote his sermons. And I was like, I'm so confused. Like none of this is adding up. Mm. None of this is making sense. And yet I believe it. I believe God does love me. I believe God does love the world. I believe God does want us to love our neighbor. And yet I can't tell anybody that I think none of this is adding up, right? That was my entire community, everything. So Dorothy Day is is very similar, right? She was like, I believe in God. I believe that every person is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and is worthy of respect. And that is what fueled her, her beliefs. Like we need to fight for the rights of the workers. Like that's what God would do. That's what Jesus would do. Mm -hmm. Jesus was an unskilled Palestinian, you know, day laborer, like who would have wanted to organize for the rights of his fellow carpenters, you know, like she's just like, this all makes so much sense to me. But the loneliness, the loneliness comes from being a part of this hierarchical institution that says they believe those same mm-hmm. things and yet does nothing, does nothing that resembles what Jesus was doing. And actually, we're actively fighting against these workers who were marching for rights in Dorothy's day. And to me, I'm like, that resonates, man. That strikes a chord. I, and I think it'll strike a chord for a lot of people who grew up like me and, and who grew up like you being told like, oh, we have the answer, like we have the keys to like God's revelation throughout all human history. And when we look and see how that's actually ended up, it's like, oh, you want, you just want, you just want to be in power and you literally believe nobody but you should be in power. Like, that's what this has all been about. Like, Mason, I've been having a lot of crises, okay? And 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 being in Dorothy Day's head has been really helpful for me. I'll say that. And I think there's just a lot of overlap mm. there. But I think if you truly believe that God is good and God wants us to love our neighbor, how can you not be incredibly lonely if you're a person of faith in the United States right now? I don't know. And that's how she kind of felt too. I mean, obviously there's already like this general loneliness and isolation that I think a lot of people experience. But then you compound that with people who are leaving their faith communities because they see the problem in it. It is it is just uh, it's really difficult. I just yeah, I just think it's it's interesting to write about a religious historical figure. And some people come to Dorothy Day as like 
okay, see, Dorothy stayed in the Catholic Church her whole life. I can stay. Mm. And I'm just saying it doesn't have to be that cut and dried. You know what I mean? Like you can come to Dorothy even if you need to leave your church, mm. even if you need to leave the institutional church, like you can still come to Dorothy and you will find a really interesting, really complex person that might make you feel less lonely, if that mm. makes sense. I just see a lot of people are like, yeah, she is the reason why I can remain in the Catholic church. I'm like, I think that's cool. But, you know, she's also your friend if you leave the mm. church too. So, You mentioned earlier that she's in the process of being canonized by the Catholic mm-hmm. church now. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why she didn't want to be canonized? Why did she not want to be a saint? I find that so funny. What's well, funny because, um, you know, she, there's all these like quotes attributed to her, but she never wrote it down. And so people who are really into Dorothy Day get quite prickly. But, you know, she's kind of famous for saying something like, you know, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. Right, and so right. really what she was saying is like, I know what they do to saints. Like, they put you on a pedestal so that nobody has to actually deal with what you're saying. Mm. And when I was starting to write the book, like in the very beginning stages, you know, I reached out to people who had written biographies of her, who had known her in real life. Like I talked, I emailed her granddaughter and I was like, what are the things you think most people miss when they're talking about Dorothy? And her granddaughter, Kate Hennessy, who wrote this beautiful book on the relationship between her mom, Tamar and Dorothy Day, uh, her grandma, it, which is called the world will be saved by, Beauty by Kate Hennessy. Um, she said something so interesting to me, and she was like, "You know, most people don't talk about Dorothy like being a mother. Like they just totally miss that whole part mm-hmm. of her life. Mm-hmm. But she was a mother. She was a single mother. You know, in the 1930s, doing all this stuff. She's like, and the other thing they don't want to talk about is her writing, especially her early writings, the mm-hmm. early years of the Catholic Worker paper, which are just." so radical mason like i love hanging out in the online archives of this specifically the first five years of the catholic worker and Mm. they're so radical they're she's obsessed with labor issues she was obsessed with labor issues in the united states all across the united states and she had some truly radical things to say and and kansy's like yeah nobody wants to talk about that like nobody wants to engage with her writings they like talking about her being a pious lady who helped the poor Mm -hmm. and who stayed a catholic her whole life she's like, uh, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. And so I'm like, yeah, I think the best way to honor Dorothy, especially as she becomes a canonized saint, is to take her writing seriously. Mm. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Maybe the biggest question in all of these questions is how has Dorothy Day shaped you and the way you are in the world? It's a, it's a very fraught question for me because um, I am autistic. And now that I have that layer of self-awareness right I have looked to Dorothy as like a role model and Dorothy's been my special interest and I wanted to be Dorothy I wanted very much to be a radical Christian and I have done many many things in my life out of this deep desire to be like Jesus to um, you know take the Sermon on the Mount seriously all these things and if I'm being perfectly honest Mason that has not been good for my mental health. And so mm. writing this book was like a really fascinating way for me to engage with Dorothy Day while the world is crumbling around me. I signed this book contract in March of 2020. So right as COVID was starting, mm. I was at home with my two kids who didn't go to school for two full years and they have various mental health things and complex disabilities going on. You know, we had all these protests happening in Portland, you know, Black Lives Matter protests. I was getting tear gas by federal agents downtown, then trying to write about Dorothy Day. We had these wildfires happening. And I was just like, the world feels like it's ending. Like, what is this all for? And 
I, I think I've come to this place where I'm like, it's really worth it to study people like Dorothy Day as we learn to be our own people. I don't want to be Dorothy Day and I don't want to encourage people mm-hmm. to be Dorothy Day. And that's probably like one of the main takeaways I have, but I have let her change me. Like I've let her mm-hmm. challenge me. She, she makes me think really hard. Like I've never thought about labor issues until I was reading her writings. Um, she makes me want to be more curious. She want she makes me want to have more compassion for other people. Um, she kind of allows me to see that history does repeat itself and that we are actually at a pretty important time in American history. And and if there's ways that I could stand up against like the rising Christian fascism, like then I want to do that. And mm. but I don't want to be her anymore. And mm-hmm. I just think that's that's a healthier thing for me to be at, I guess. Right. No, it, it's never healthy for someone to be someone that they're not, right? You are fully you. And even though you might be shaped, you might be challenged by another person, that doesn't mean that you have to be someone entirely different. You get to be you. I know. That's hard, though, Mason. If you grew up evangelical, you don't really get that message, do you? And then there's, I think, even in progressivism, there's this idea like... right don't be you, you know, be a radical, Mm -hmm. be a, a, be a Dorothy Day. And it's like, I don't know, man, we have, if we fully know who we are, we know exactly how we can stand up to important moments, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. How do you hope Unruly Saint inspires and liberates its readers? I think my main goal is that uh, some parts of the long loneliness, you know, this book that Dorothy wrote are just really squarely centered in her time and she kind of wrote almost like a beat poet sometimes and so she uses all these names and characters and references that like people like myself I'm like I don't know what's going on so I kind of wrote my book centered on the starting of the Catholic worker paper leading up to when she basically wrote and published The Long Loneliness so I'd love it if people would read my book and then read Dorothy's writings um, be challenged by them and just kind of I, I, I don't know be inspired to engage with with Christian anarchism, I think would be a mm. huge, I, I just love to see that conversation happening more and more, but also I hope that it will kind of give us some solace and some fortitude because, you know, I don't think things are going to get easier for us in mm. the next little while. Um, and people like Dorothy just helped me take a deep breath and say, things have always been pretty bad. Um, Christians have always been incredibly driven by power while also holding at their core, these ideals that do give inherent dignity to every person, especially those without power. I don't know. It just gives me permission to be like, this is so hard. This is so confusing. And this is who I am. And this is where I live. And this is, this is our moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's some overlaps. There's some real overlaps between Dorothy Day's, you know, birth of the Catholic worker movement and, and today. Yeah. Lovely. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, I'm on Twitter as DL Mayfield. I am also on Instagram. Uh, my husband, Crispin, and I have a podcast. And this is so funny. Like, it has nothing to do with Dorothy Day, but it kind of does. We're <laughs> doing um, the Jesus Freaks album by DC Talk. And, you know, in my mind, Dorothy Day is a Jesus freak, too. <laughs> so we're just kind of like talking through those themes. Um, and that's called the Prophetic Imagination Station. I also have a newsletter where I am talking about. Uh, this intersection of late diagnosed neurodivergence and Christianity, specifically high control mm. Christianity. And we're having a lot of fun over there. And that is called God is my special interest over at Substack. Oh, I love that. I love that. And where can and should people get the book? 
Well, uh, I mean, I love supporting local bookstores. The cool thing, I think this, I don't know when this episode's coming out, but it's already like shipping out early from so many places. I would say, you know, look on bookshop.org. I have, I will be sending out on my social media. So if you follow me on Twitter, Instagram, a local bookstore of uh, a friend of mine owns it. He's going to be sending out like a 20% off if you pre-order through him. So I will be posting that if you want. It's called Arches Bookstore. So shout out to Adam at Arches. Love it. Love it. Well, DL, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about Dorothy Day and her life. Uh, she is somebody that has certainly shaped my own uh, imagination around politics and theology. She actually was one of the first people I read in seminary, uh, which I think oh, is really, really interesting. Yeah, I read uh, The Long Loneliness uh, as one of the first books I read in seminary. And so, yeah, I, I just think the world uh, of Dorothy Day and the work that she uh, has done with the Catholic worker movement and and just almost, again, bringing that sort of Christian socialism to uh, a really important place in in, uh, in America. And so, yeah, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about her and uh, finally getting to hang out with one of uh, one of uh, the relative, you know, one, one of the Mayfields in the world, including Lindsay, although she's not a Mayfield. <laughs> yeah, it was great talking to you, Mason. If you would like to connect with DL and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.